Your time is now. The world needs leaders. It's up to you to answer the call. Be better in business. Be better in life. Joined by our host, Chris Book. This is Leading by the Book. Hey guys, welcome to Leading by the Book. I'm Chris Book. Hope you are dominating the beginning of your week. As always, you can get in touch with me. If you've got any questions or anything you'd like to hear addressed on the show, shoot me a message, chris at leadingbythebook.com, or you can find me at leadingbythebook.com. Today, we've got an awesome guest, and that guest is Tim Kopp. Some of you may, may know Tim, some of you may not. If you don't, you should, and if you do know him, you're, you're obviously impressed and glad that you do know who he is. So Tim has an incredible background. He started his career as a CPG marketer, ultimately grew into the SaaS and the analytics world. And then from there, became the CMO of Exact Target. And Exact Target, obviously a company that's played a pretty significant role in, in my life. But apart from just the amazing people who have come out of it, it's a pretty incredible success story for a great Midwest SaaS company that ultimately was acquired by Salesforce after its own individual IPO, and then became a very central point in Salesforce's growth. And so as we talk to Tim, I think there, there's an incredible... Uh, amount that we're going to be able to learn from him. Obviously, on the leadership side, his his viewpoints are going to be terribly impactful for you. But what really strikes me about Tim is how, despite the incredible success he has and the, the very large and successful companies that he's played a part in, he operates in a very human way. And I think as leaders, that's definitely something that a lot of us struggle with. We think we get to a certain level and we've got to be very decisive and very authoritative and in everything that goes with that. And where Tim really excels is just being a personable, relatable person. And I think for all leaders, that is something that we can always improve with. So I really hope you enjoy getting to know Tim a little bit. And he's got an incredible resume, like I said. Currently, he's a partner in Hyde Park Venture Partners. And if you want to learn more about him, I would highly recommend checking out cmovc.com. And that's Tim's personal site. And he's got a great newsletter that goes out every couple of weeks, I believe. And there is a heavy, heavy dose of leadership material and insight within that. So I really hope you enjoy, Tim. If you do like what you hear today, definitely drop him a line. Follow him on Twitter and or LinkedIn and let him know that you heard him on the show and that you really like what he has to say because I think he's an incredible person. He was an incredible guest on the show and he's definitely someone that's going to be able to teach you a lot if you're able to subscribe to his newsletter or follow him from here on out. So with that, here's Tim Kopp. Our guest today on Leading by the Book is Tim Kopp, and Tim is a guy that I met about 10 years ago now, right around the time that he was joining Exact Target. Exact Target's a company that I sort of grew up around, actually, and uh, plenty of the people there have, have gone on to become friends and, and really done some incredible things. But Tim, you actually started your career in CPG, correct? Yeah, I sure did. Procter & Gamble. And so you went from, if, if I'm correct, go, going through the lineage here, you went from P&G, you ultimately went over to Coke in, in marketing roles, and then you transitioned to the yep. SaaS world. You got it. Yep. I led, um, started off kind of cutting my teeth in digital marketing at P&G, and then went on to uh, lead kind of all the global marketing digitally for Coke uh, for a few years, and then switched into the world of software. Um, after that, it was kind of an, uh, an advisor while at um, Coke for a company called Web Trends, moved in to be their CMO for a few years. And then that's how I ended up uh, crossing path with a group at Exact Target. Sure. And then, and then Exact Target, you were chief marketing officer. And then since Exact Target, you've gone on to become a partner. Um, I believe you're the GP at Hyde Park. You got it. Hyde Park Ventures. Perfect. 
Perfect. So as you went from that transition from the CPG world to the SaaS world, and obviously you got involved with with um, with, with web trends on the SaaS side. But what really predicated that 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 larger move into SaaS? What, what what was the crux really from saying I want to move out of the CPG world into SaaS? Was it just pure opportunity in the fact that the SaaS market was incredibly hot, or was it part of a more deeply seated interest? Um, it was software was so early on it was there really wasn't any CMO roles in SaaS. So I kind of like created that. I think it was one of the, the very first marketing just didn't have a proper leadership seat at the table. Um, but what I was really born out of Chris was just a need for more growth. It was I was sitting in a strategic planning meeting at Coke and I think we were talking about one year how we could grow from like four percent to five percent and what things would have to change to do that. And it was like, oh my gosh, like I just I want a bigger sandbox, with a lot more change, a lot more pace, a lot more velocity, a lot more innovation, and uh, so that led me sort of down into the world of tech. Is that a skill set that you look for now, as 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 you're ultimately investing in companies? Just this, maybe for lack of a better term, this desire to constantly be evolving and be improving. Absolutely, ability to change and adapt. I think is particularly in the world of high growth and software, I think just the world generally the way it is right now, but um, you just have to be very comfortable in your own skin and um, have the ability to change and adapt pretty quickly. So most of the, you know, I took on the team at Exact Target, which you mentioned, I think we had uh, 10 people on that team and then it grew to like 400 in the years I was there. And I think of the 400, probably like 380 of them had no prior marketing experience, or like a software company. So it was like, Absolutely about recruiting to a profile and um, leadership. I, I recruited for three things: it was leadership, problem solving, and communication skills. But the the, the backbone of all that was really um, adaptability. You know, and it's funny when you look at at roles now and, and and across ecosystems. Whether you're whether you're a kid graduating college now or you're further in your career, it seems that we tend to want to put people in these roles. Whether they're they're a finance person, they're a marketing person, and I'm starting to become of the belief that it's really less about that actual subject matter and more about some of the intangible skills, to your, to your point, the problem-solving, the adaptability, the leadership. Is that something you would say is a valid point of view, or, or am I totally off the reservation with that? No, I think it is. because um, So, look, let's be really honest. Even if you're going into marketing of the world I'm in right now, college doesn't teach you the right way to do it anyway. <laughs> I mean, just to be totally straight up about it. Not like all the marketing classes you're taking. I don't care if you went to Harvard, Stanford, whatever. Like they don't teach how to do high tech growth B two B marketing. Uh, they don't actually teach the fundamentals of B two C marketing very well. So you of course learn how to learn, and you learn a lot of the building blocks of marketing. But um, and, and the world is just changing so fast. So most of the jobs we're hiring for are jobs that didn't even exist ten years ago. You know, it's funny to hear that. So I was sitting in a college classroom at Arizona State University in 2005. And at the time, I was actually working full-time for, for Jay Bayer. And, and obviously, we were heavily involved in the digital marketing side of the world, and he was running a digital agency at the time. And I remember I was taking a class taught by the chair of the marketing department. And I kid you not, he absolutely said, the internet is a passing fad. You don't need to worry about learning how to market on the web. And th- that has stuck with me because I-, I don't think that was necessarily a prevalent belief amongst all universities, but whether it's marketing, finance, leadership, whatever it may be, 
it does seem that we need to really reevaluate how we're developing these these skills at colleges and universities. And I guess the broader question is, is that something that can actually be developed in a classroom environment like that? Or is that something that you simply have to be doing with your hands on a more tangible basis to really learn and, and frankly, be accomplished with? You know, I, it's a big question. I, the way I think leadership is caught more than it is taught. Um, I think it's just you can sit and read all the leadership books in the world. You can become very academically sound on the principles of leadership and know, you know, Jim Collins and all the gurus back. And, but until you've done it and you've gotten your nose bloodied, I think that's where the real learning happens. And so I believe that you learn great leadership by being around other great leaders. So I believe it's much more caught than taught. So one, one of the unfair questions I ask a lot of people on this show is, what is the most important leadership trait? And obviously, that can mean a lot of things to a lot of different people. And I think probably a lot of times the most important trait is what the team needs. But when you're sitting and you're really thinking about the topic of leadership, what, what is the 1A for you in terms of what it takes to be successful? I think I, I might insert a 1A and B because I think the, the two components I see are the ability to see the future, to, to know where things are going, and then to build the team around you who can get you there. And if you can't see the future, you're probably a better manager than you are a leader. They're both really valuable, but I think you're making the distinction around leadership. But I think leadership inherently has a visionary trait or quality to it, and you've got to be able to see around corners and have a great instinct and know what the future looks like. But you will inherently be limited in what you can do unless you can build and scale and get a team around you who's better than you. And I think if I've had a gifting throughout my career, it's been to do that, to get really good people working um, in and around and for me. You know, it's it's funny you you say that just when, when you think back on, on really ultimately freeing up the good people to, to do good work. You know, th- thinking back, there was a time in my career when I ultimately took over a, a finance team, and I had zero, and I mean zero, financial experience before this. And, you know, of course, when, when you come into that, you, you have all the immediate fears and anxieties about it. I think, geez, are, are they going to think I'm an idiot? I don't know what I'm doing. Am I going to be overwhelmed? You know, all, all these voices are in your head. And the really pivotal moment for me in that, that experience became realizing that these are the people that are supposed to be smart. And my job is not to be the best finance guy, but my job is ultimately to put them in the position to be the smartest people. And just that that fundamental shift really, really resounded with me in terms of just being able to be successful. And frankly, that was probably the most successful team I've ever been on. Um, but when it comes to leadership, yeah. there, there is this misconception that you need to be the smartest guy in the room. And more often than not, that's completely false. it's more helpful if you're not. <laughs> it, it really yeah, is. sometimes. Yeah, I think, you know, some of the best leaders I know are probably not the most academically gifted. Like, it can actually be a hindrance at a certain level if folks are too academically oriented. I also, the parts that didn't come out, there's so many important parts. Done. Like, people read a book like about Steve Jobs and then try to become Steve Jobs yeah. or a book about Bill Gates. and tri- Like, you have to be who you are. And I think you can take cues and learn from many things around you, but just being incredibly comfortable in your own skin, I think is a big, a big part of leadership and knowing what you're good at, what you're not good at, and just um, embracing that. Because look, if people see right through it, they already know. I think it's just, I really do believe that this uh, uh, authenticity has been like a very important part of leadership in the past, but will be even more important over the next decade or two. 
that's what it takes to be able to connect and, and truly follow a leader. Nobody wants to follow the autocratic, distant, demanding person, but the person that you, or I should say the leader that you actually see as a person is ultimately that, that person that people want to follow. And I, I don't think that gets nearly enough credit. And maybe it's because we're, we're, in, we're in the tech world now. And so we see Jobs, we see Zuckerberg, we, we see these people and we think, wow, I, I want to be a billionaire. You know, let's go do that. And I kind of feel like more often than not, they're the exception more than the rule. They're definitely the exception. Yeah, they're, they're absolutely the exception. And what most of them, you know, Zuckerberg has Sandberg, like, you know, tends, sure. there tends to be a Batman and a Robin. And so there's like a visionary and an innovator and a founder, but there tends to be somebody else that comes alongside and ultimately help kind of scale things and run things. And that, that you know, kind of what Eric Schmidt did at Google or what, but it really does require that very authentic leadership. Even Benioff at Salesforce, I think it's just a great, Mark is just Mark, right? And he's, he's a great visionary, but he's super comfortable with who he is. So a word you've used a couple times now is scale. And going back to those ET years, it was, first of all, ET was really cool to watch from the outside. Um, obviously one, because I, I knew a ton of people there. And it was really great to see the company grow. But two, it was just this incredible Midwest company that seemed like it was run the right way. And it had this ridiculous, ridiculous growth. And so the question I have really about ET, though, is in the midst of all of that growth, how how was leadership pivotal to that? But also, how did leadership change in the midst of growth? Because obviously, the the parameters with which you lead a company that's 50 or 100 people, substantially different than, than a company that's 3,000 people. And it still found a way to be successful at every stage of that journey. So I'm really curious how that that leadership had to change. Yeah, and for those listening who don't know the exact Target story, I guess, you know, to Chris and I, it's well known, but it, you know, went from a guy and a founding idea in a garage to a $2.5 billion uh, acquisition by a company called Salesforce.com, um, like 10 years later. So we went in, and even in the seven years I was there, we went from, I think it was like employee 125, 150, something like that to over 2000. So, you know, really rapid growth through an IPO, through an acquisition. And, um, I think there's like a distinction maybe between leadership and management and having culture was the backbone of everything that we did. It was such an important part of what we did. It made its way into this document called an S1, which is what you file with the SEC before you go public. And it's basically like, what's the biggest secret ingredient of the company? And it actually was like our people and culture. And that was, though we were a tech company, it was absolutely our people for those who encountered the company that was our biggest um, differentiator. So that was true. Um, uh, it was sort of the, the, the culture, the core values, the guiding principles of the company, those staying very clear and having a very authentic North Star. Scott Dorsey was our CEO, and he just embodied that. It was a very founder-driven, innovative culture. But then it was putting the management layers around the company. You know, the executives to run the company looked very different when it was a founding team than it did at 10 million. Then we had to switch it out again at 50 million. We had to kind of switch it again at 100 million. So though I worked at one exact target, I like to say I had five different jobs because it felt like every year and a half, it was a fundamentally different job. So looking at Scott specifically as a CEO and you know, one of the things that I remember uh, about Scott, who I've I've met a few times over the years, and about you and 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 really your senior team is like Chris Baggett, obviously um, n- another founder of the company, included in this conversation as well. Is you know e- even when I was, geez, what was I? I'm afraid to admit this. Probably a 19 year old kid run, running around there. You know, everybody still 
treat, treated, whether you're 19 or wh- whether you were an established professional, treated you with an incredible amount of respect and interest, actually, took a, took a legitimate interest in you. And it seemed to me always that given the location of the company, being a Midwest company, that it, it was a matter of finding the right leaders for that and, and ultimately to lead the mindsets of the people that you're going to have working there. It, had you had, let, let's say, a CEO from Silicon Valley or you know, some type of Wall Street-minded CEO, would the company have been as successful as it was given where it was and, and the values with which it operated? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. It was... Um... Look, this is like you talked about, like even sports teams in the beginning, like Bill Belichick is absolutely the right coach for the Patriots. Could you pick him up and install him in another system? No. I mean, it's like um, leadership, I think, can be highly situational. And it's all about the culture fit and what you're trying to build. And it's understanding what that culture looks like, who, who, like, how do, you know, the Patriots, I hate when they beat up on my Colts all the time, but how do they pick players up off the scrap heap and suddenly they're you know, starters within their system. And it's all about the culture and the system that they've installed. And I think that was uh, just one of the things that Scott nailed to his credit. And so both of you respectively are obviously investing in companies right now. Um, It does seem that those companies tend to be a little bit more Midwest oriented companies. And with that is, is part of the reason for that Midwest focus simply because you guys have seen this, this work? Or is there some other driving force behind the regional focus there? Well, the regional focus in our case, is we're more looking for, um, like so many things in life come down to supply and demand. And what, what I learned at Exact Target is you can build a phenomenal company anywhere in the country. In fact, I think building it not in Silicon Valley, it can be a huge competitive advantage. Absolutely. But it took a while for investors to figure that out. and to come. So what we found is these phenomenal entrepreneurs and phenomenal companies that existed in places like Indianapolis and Cincinnati and Ann Arbor and Minneapolis. Um, and the venture capital just was not flying in from the coast to fund those companies. So Hyde Park kind of popped up to take advantage of that, that very opportunity. There's amazing entrepreneurs who were just highly underserved with capital. Well, and you're starting to see a, a little bit more of, a, of an appreciation for this now. I think, you know, even folks that are outside of those key markets in the Midwest, yeah. I think you, you have Steve Case with the Rise of the Rest Fund, if I'm correct. And I, I think yeah. people are starting to appreciate that you can not only run a great tech business, but also a very healthy business if you do it in a place like Indianapolis, and even a place like Chicago, which is a little bit bigger market. Um, that, I think that's exactly right. When, when we had this thesis and started the fund six or seven years ago, the biggest thing that we had to sell people on was that you could actually build a great business in the Midwest, as ridiculous as that sounds. Yeah. Now, a lot's actually changed over the last five years. With that, I don't want to say it's a foregone conclusion, but the world has really done a 180, um, and, it, and it's really changed. And I think sort of the, the cat's out of the bag, the, you know, the genie's out of the bottle, whatever, whatever metaphor you want to use, the secret's out, and, uh, and people are realizing it. But it was, that was not so much the case. Uh, a while ago. But I do think what's important is these entrepreneurs need somebody to come alongside them that they trust. It's, you know, when you invite somebody onto your board of directors, you know, other than like your spouse, you're kind of stuck with this person as much as you are anybody for many, many years and for good times and bad times. And so having the right level of culture fit with somebody, I think is really important. So having built and scaled companies in the Midwest, just like they're doing, um, I do think gives us a competitive advantage. So I, I don't want to keep going back to the ET years, but just one one last uh, question I suppose I have on this. 
And it's really because I think for our audience, most most of these folks are probably never going to be in in an IPO situation like that, or, or you know, probably not get a great chance to see something with with such remarkable growth, like like you guys saw. Is there a favorite moment that just sticks out from that whole that whole journey? I mean, is it something where you know once you file that S one and, and there's that that euphoria on that, or is there just something just bizarre that you look back on just and you smile every time you think back on it? You know, it um, it's actually it's moments with the team. It's you know like from my days playing sports. It's more like the moments in the locker room, and uh, we put on this giant event each year called Connections, which you talked about and you actually attended. And we grew that event from, you know, four or 500 people to over 10,000 people. And um, watching, you know, this team in Indianapolis who had no experience do this, put on what I think was the best user conference in all of software and just got incredible reviews. Watching my team excel and being able to stand back and just watch the end product of that and being able to, uh, you know, put a smile on all of our customers' faces and uh, get the kind of reviews and accolades it did. That was probably the biggest, my biggest uh, shining moment was uh, being able to just step back and watch other people on the team hit their, hit their stride and hit their full potential. Well, as, as somebody that attended a lot of those conferences at, for, for a lot of different companies, I think it's prob- probably safe to say Connections was was the one that was not only the most fun, but but certainly delivered the most value. So looking at, at the trajectory of your career, you know, g- going from a CPG background to ultimately into SaaS, and then within SaaS, you know, obviously you had, you know, ter- tremendous evolution within that in terms of being, you know, kind of a, a late, later stage startup going to the IPO and the acquisition by Salesforce, and then ultimately going to the VC world. You've had a lot of relatively significant transitions. And I think that that a lot of people don't really focus on on really owning or, or winning their transitions as much as they can, because obviously it's a new beginning and it's a tremendous opportunity, but it can, it can really shake a lot of people. So what is your advice for managing those transitions within your professional life? Hmm. You know, I don't know. Um, I Here's what I do think is important is I think why matters a lot more than what. And if you know what your why is, it really makes transitions and a lot of the what's a lot easier. You know, for example, the reason um, my first 10 years of my career, I wanted to be all about getting the very best training that I could and learning about leadership and uh, being around other high impact leaders and getting good training. And um, and so P&G and Coke were about as good as it got for doing that. I, I was incredibly, you know, blessed to, to have that. Then I really wanted the chance to have some um, do something much more innovative, to do something that hadn't been done before and sort of breaking into digital marketing and, and leadership, like innovation and building and scaling and leading teams is kind of what the next 10 years is about. And now it's much more, it's almost, Chris, it's like, it's more like coaching tree. I get more satisfaction out of watching those I interact with succeed as I do succeeding myself and um, being able to help unlock the potential of the next generation of entrepreneurs throughout the Midwest is um, it's just, it's so cool. And I think if you know what your why is, so that's what my why is. And I hope that, and we are generating phenomenal returns. We're one of the top ranked funds. Things are going very, very well, but my why is deeper than that. It's more about impacting the lives of the people at these companies. And I think if, um, 
you know, Simon Sinek wrote this book called Why recently, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it just does a great job of nailing this. And I think if you uh, are much more in touch with your why, it, I think people who are job hopping and skipping around so much are, are a little bit maybe too, you know, there's reasons to do that sometime, but I don't think I've ever had a job less than a few years. And sometimes you just have to settle in. And if you know what your why is more than your what, you're okay with that. And then I think the biggest part of transitions is uh, humility. Because then I went from being a SaaS CMO and scaling and building. And I was, I was, you know, pretty close to the top of the class as I could be. Like I felt like I really learned a lot. And then I moved into venture and I felt like the dumbest kid in school. You know, and it's just, you've got to be able to learn. You got, if you want to constantly be learning and growing, you've got to learn to embrace humility and make yourself uh, pretty comfortable with situations where you're not the smartest person in the room. You know, I've, I've gotten onto that that tangent of thought a little bit lately, maybe in the past year, I guess, but how important it is for us just even, you know, set aside the, the professional side of it, but just as people to put ourselves in situation where, you know, for lack of a better term, we are the dumbest person in the room, but because it, it's so easy to get insulated in our daily routine and our cycles, you know, even, you know, as a marketer or whatever, you know, even if you're doing new stuff every day, you're still a marketer and well, it's challenging you. It's not challenging you to your core of when you truly are starting from scratch. And, you know, for instance, I, for whatever reason, about a year ago, decided I'm going to get a Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I've never been involved in a combat sport in my life, but that, that process of getting my butt kicked, literally showing, showing up at home, bleeding with black eyes every day was so great in terms of what it meant for, I guess, my personal development, my creativity outside of that. I mean, so even as, as a VC now, are you constantly looking for new ways to, to challenge yourself and to develop yourself? Yeah, I don't, I don't have to look for it. It finds me. <laughs> it just it constantly exposes, you know, it, uh, I think, you know, it's probably, I don't know, some probably like fewer than a thousand, you know, full-time really going at it VCs with highly sort of highly qualified funds. There's just not a lot. And, uh, there is just so much to learn. And, um, you know, the profession itself is fairly new. There's not a lot of people doing it. And um, so it is a, uh, it constantly gets me in touch with my humility. That's for sure. As a VC now, when you're looking at potential investments, what are those key traits that you really look for in CEOs? We talked about this a, a little bit at the top of the, the the conversation here. But I mean, there are a couple things that are just check, check, check. We We have to have, I know you said adaptability, but what else is there in terms of your confidence that this is somebody that can not only lead a team, but can grow a company to generate the returns that, that our partners are ultimately looking for. Yeah, you know, like so many things would be like, if you want to be great at baseball, what do you do? You hit the ball so you can make it sound like really. But for us, it really comes down to two things. It's finding really good markets and really good founders. And if I can only have one of the two, I'll take a really good founder who goes and figures out a tough market. And it is, well, the quantitative parts of this job are really important. I, um, I think actually the qualitative parts might be underappreciated. Like it would have been easy to look at exact target and say, like, they send email and like, I don't get it. It doesn't seem like that big of an idea. And I think you put the right leader in a situation and they make things happen. And so I think just, um, really, uh, finding a plus plus founders who kind of have that X factor, and of course, that's pretty pretty subjective, but I think that's the number one thing. Sure. And so you did talk about the why a, a little bit earlier. 
do you think that that this idea of the why is is something that that the younger generation ultimately struggles with? And what I mean by that is when when we live in in such a a tech oriented world, and I don't want to be the guy that's constantly bashing tech and and social and all that, but we ultimately find ourselves comparing to other people, you know, how much money are they making? What are they driving? Where are they living? What are they doing with their time? This whole comparison game. Do you feel like sometimes the whys are more externally driven than internally driven? Oh, yeah, 100%. I think people spend too many times in their life looking for Instagrammable moments and not looking how to impact the lives of other people. You know, I, I got off Facebook like three years ago, and it was like the best thing I ever did. Because I, I, maybe it was like just me, but it was like, Every time I get off Facebook, I'm in a little bit worse mood than when I got on. Oh, absolutely. Like, like, why is that? And I think it's because of the compare. Like, I'd be at home relaxing on a Sunday afternoon, and then you look around, and it's like, oh, well, they're at the Colts game. Maybe I should be there. Well, this person's here. Well, I'm having these messy family dynamics. Their family looks perfect. You know, it's just the constant comparisons, and it's, uh, look, man, you just got to own your stuff and live in the moment where you are and make the most of it. So I'm not saying that means you shouldn't be on social media, but it's uh, – I think all this comparison and looking for how to create these perfect, like, Instagrammable moments in your life, I am not a fan of. I'm a much bigger fan of jumping in the messiness of it and being anchored in, uh, you know, just being really clear on who you are and what you're about. And, uh, you know, we all have a little bit of that, but I am all about ripping away the distractions that relate to uh, comparison. You know, I do think there's something to be said for for frankly, tech addiction to different levels. Um, I, I know in, in my own life, I've had to really become disciplined about when I check my phone, what I do on my phone, to the, to the point that I actually have scheduled time to check my phone throughout the day because I don't want to constantly be ha- feeling that tug, so to speak. And, that, and that's ultimately the way these products are designed. There, there's a little tug in our brain that makes us keep going back for that little shot of of adrenaline or whatever it gives us every time we do it. But you know, you're. Let's say you're at a Colts game. You're at a pivotal moment of that Colts game. I'm willing to bet if you look around, seventy to eighty percent of the people are not watching the game, but actually watching their phone, trying to capture a moment of the game on their phone. And and it's heartbreaking because we're not we're not living. You know, we're not doing anything other than creating some semblance of artificial reality when when the most beautiful reality is is right in front of us. And I think when it comes to raising kids, and and obviously this is something that's really top of mind to me right now. Um, because I need to make sure I get this right, and I'm I'm sure I'll I'll fail many times over. But how do we how do we ultimately raise kids in a way in this tech world where they're not playing this comparison game, where where they're somehow motivated by something from within? I mean, as, as a parent, what do we do with that? Yeah, I know it's um, look if you figure that one out, let's write a book. But uh, that's a that's a tough one. But I think the more you're in touch with um, you know, who you are, it's, it's the things that make you popular often are not the things that will make you successful. And sure. they're just they're two different things. And it's, um, you know, the older you get, the more that's revealed. So at this stage in, in your career and in your life, what does a perfect day look like for you? Perfect day is, you know, it's different all the time. I, what I've learned is who I'm with is a lot more important than what I'm doing. Sure. And so when people are like, what are you doing this weekend? It's like, I could actually be doing nothing but doing it with people I really like. And I actually like that time a lot more than off doing, you know, whatever things I like to do when I was in my early 20s. Um, So it's being with, you know, again, it sounds like a pretty simplistic mundane answer. But I think 
really trying to, who I surround myself with is more important than that. But the things that I found that make me generally most happy is when I'm leading. Um, I like to lead and grab hold of situations and, and uh, I like to have an impact and I like to do it in a way that I can have a lot of flexibility in my life. Uh, those are the things that are most important to me and doing that with other high quality people around me. So I like lots and lots of variety where I'm doing all kinds of different things, but uh, like just centered around being with uh, having an impact and doing it with people that, uh, that I want to be around. So you talked about leading and the importance of leading and the enjoyment you find leading. You know, and the funny thing about leadership is that we're never good enough at it. It's something that, that we constantly need to evolve with. So from your perspective, or I guess, you know, from a day-to-day perspective for you, what do you really do, you know, with, with true intent to develop the, those leadership skills? Are there things you read? Are there exercises that you put yourself through? I know some people have a series of questions that they constantly ask themselves day after day. What, what do you do to make sure that you're constantly improving and evolving in that? Um, I have two answers to that. The first one is just putting yourself around enough other high-impact leaders. So um, just being around other good leaders, I think, is the best way to develop your leadership, period. I also think that people sometimes like overcomplicate leadership. To be a leader, you only have to have one thing be true, and that's have people willing to follow you. You don't need to have authority. You don't need to have, you don't need to have anything really other than for whether you do it with charisma, expertise, because people believe it. If somebody's willing to follow you, you're a leader. And so I think being um, driven enough at what you're doing that other people want to follow you. So I think you have to clearly articulate what you stand for and be really good at communicating that. And when that happens, you just find yourself in leadership positions. And I think people spend too much time like confusing management with leadership. And so they're always asking for more to do. And I'm like, well, just go lead. You don't, you don't need my permission to lead. And that's one of the things that just perplexes me how people mix that up. You know, it is kind of humorous. Well, humorous probably isn't the right word, but there's this this misconception that somehow we need to be at a senior position in a company. We need, we need to be a VP, an SVP, whatever, to be able to lead. And you can be fresh out of college. You can be an analyst-level person. And it can be day one, and you can still lead. You know, and to your point, you, you, you just need people to follow you. And e- even if they are above you in the pecking order, the chain of command, they might have more seniority, whatever it is, you can still impact people as a leader. And I do think that's, that's a point that we probably need to do a better job hitting home with, with younger folks now, because you know, we, we don't need people that are just sitting there taking orders, going through the motions. We need people that are truly invested and engaged and leadership is ultimately the, the magic way to do that. Yes, absolutely. And typically if you are really good at what you do and you care about other people and you're trying to build them up and you're, you know, people will start, following you. And so by default, then you kind of become a leader. And to your point, I've seen, you know, front desk receptionists, um, you know, uh, uh, administrative assistants, those kind of folks end up being like actually some of the strongest, the people with the most influence inside of a company. Yeah. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Yeah. And it's just, but like, they didn't necessarily go, they're not like banging on the table for more authority. They are just really good at what they do and other people want to be around them. And so they have these sort of inherent leadership. So I think it's almost like accidental leadership sometimes where people find themselves in these positions of leadership because they 
they have those traits. But um, man, you, you, you're exactly right. People just confuse management and authority with leadership all the time. Well, there's a human side to it, too. And we, we alluded to this a little bit when, when we were talking about Jobs and Zuckerberg and those folks. But we some people approach leadership thinking that, that they have to be a robot about it, basically. And and more often than not, the best thing you can do to, to influence people, which is really what leadership is, Le- leadership is an exercise in influence, it's just be a person, care about people, interact with them like a human being. And to your point, wh- whether you're an SVP or whether you're the receptionist, the way you interact with people, the way you make them feel by treating them like a person and, and exposing yourself as a person yourself can truly make all the difference. And more often than not, that's actually probably all you need. In, in order to really effectively lead people. It's, it's not much, much more complex than that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And that is different from management. Management and leadership are two very different things. There's sometimes where it's more, you know, command and control and it's an emergency response situation and there's somebody who's in charge per se and you know, it's managing through a situation and then leadership can be very different. But um, the very best Best leaders tend to be pretty good managers, too, but um, you're mm-hmm. spot on. All right, so I know, I know we've got a little bit of a time crunch here. So two quick questions that, that I'd really just love to get your perspective on. One, what is success to you? You know, I'll tell you what it honestly is right now, Chris. It's my coaching tree. It's less about what I get done right now. And if I've actually accomplished so much more than I ever thought I would, to be really honest. 20 years ago, I never thought I'd be where I am now. And so I, I just get so much more of a kick out of um, developing others. So like every one of my direct reports at Exact Target went on to be a CMO or a CEO or somewhere else. Um, I think 14 people it is now who are below them went on to be a VP of marketing or a CMO. And that is what I hope is my biggest legacy. It's kind of what I would just call coaching tree. And it's developing an organization where others can be successful because I think it's one, I find it the most personally fulfilling, but it, it's also like what creates the greatest sustaining impact. Sure. And so last question here, what is the most important book you've ever read? For me, it's the Bible, actually. Um, I think it is just, uh, it's, it's absolute truth and just basic things that are in Proverbs, I think are just full of such wisdom and discernment and clarity. They're moving to me. So the honest answer on the personal side is uh, is the Bible, just because of just a lot of um, strip all the politics out of it. I just think the essence of wisdom that you can find within Proverbs is uh, is just remarkable. And um, the ones that I've read lately that have had the biggest impact on me have been uh, a book called Essentialism, which is about yes. how to better saying no to things, which has been, I think, what really can define a leader. We've talked a lot about saying yes to things. I think what is probably most not talked about is how to say no to things and how to be really good at a fewer number of things. And it's something that I've had to practice and, and become more disciplined at, but that's probably been the most impactful of late. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a fantastic book. And, you know, go, going back to your, to your previous point uh, about how impactful the Bible is for you, we, uh, a couple weeks ago on the show, had Alistair James, and he's the CEO of, of Pier One, and is a guy I worked with um, in my previous life at Sears, and, and that was his answer to that same question as well. And one of the things we were talking about is, what, what's incredible about the Bible is not just the, the wisdom in Proverbs, which is absurd, and you know, I try, try to read a proverb every day, um, and not just the, the sheer magnitude and, and how jam-packed the book is, but the beauty of that is 
our understanding of it constantly evolves. Every time we go back and read even the same five words, what we take away yeah. from that is constantly changing. And, and you know, I, I don't know if I would get the same, <laughs> the same takeaway if I went back and read even Essentialism, which is a great book to me. I, you know, I might, might right. take something away. But every single day, having something new be opened up to me, I, it's, just, it's just such a remarkable, remarkable book in that sense. It's, it's just true. It's living and breathing word, which is different than any other kind of word. And every time you read it, it'll hit you in a different way that kind of pierces you. And uh, it's just the, uh, the truth and simplicity of that are just, uh, it's just, it's just uh, it's pretty amazing. Well, and as with everything, it's usually the simple things that, that end up being the, the, the truest treasures in life. So with that, I know you've got, you've got a lot on your plate, and I know you've got to run to a meeting here. So I want to thank you very much for your time. I'm sure everybody that listened to this is going to take quite a bit away from it and love it. Um, definitely check out uh, Tim's fund, Hyde Park Venture Partners, if you, if you are so inclined. Be sure to follow him. Your CMO to VC emails that I get from you every week or every two weeks are wonderful, so I'd encourage everybody to subscribe to those. And Tim, just thank you so much for your time. It's been great to get caught up after all these years. Yeah, happy to do it. Wish you the best.